tonight we're going to look, we're going to kind of take a break for the Minor Prophets. Um, and we're going to look at Acts 3. And before I read the passage, I'm going to tell you why we're taking a break from the Minor Prophets and why we're looking at Acts 3. We're still talking about the same story. Uh, if you've been with us throughout the semester, or if you haven't been with us throughout the semester, we've been going through the Minor Prophets, and they are the shorter books towards the end of the Old Testament. They're not minor because they're unimportant. They're minor because they're shorter. And uh, what we've been reading about is about how, and we've been placing in the historical context, in the 9th, 8th, and 7th century B.C., Israel was called to be God's people, and in a lot of ways they failed to be God's people. And the minor prophets are these people that God sent to Israel to call them back into living lives of holiness for the purpose of fulfilling a promise that God made in Genesis 12. And that promise was made to this guy named Abram. And with Abram, God started this whole work of what we can now call Christianity or what we might call redemption by saying, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless the nations. And so we've been studying a particular moment in redemptive history, in the history of God's work of saving the world um, through the minor prophets. And what I want to do tonight is in Acts 3, jump a little bit further along in the story and see how in the New Testament they looked back on those Old Testament promises and that story of redemption occurring through the Old Testament and kind of get a taste of the way they thought about it. And before we jump in, I want to talk, I want to make two points about what we're doing. What I hope you're beginning to see is that Scripture is not this list of propositional truth statements about God. God is love. It has those things in it. God is just. God is pure. God is holy. But more so than that, Scripture is actually a story. It's the story of God's work of redemption from the beginning, the foundation of the earth, all the way up until the first century. And so we're really, uh, uh, the reason I bring that up is because um, we have to understand it in its context as a story. And you see, stories are really actually how we learn and how we change and how we grow. A lot of y'all sat in lectures today and you heard professors make comments about, you know, truth statements about chemistry or biology or history and all this kind of stuff. And you might remember the lecture, you probably don't. Um, but what you do remember is you remember the powerful stories you've heard in your life. The great movies, right, that have like penetrated your heart that you love. You remember those stories. Stories, in a lot of ways, are more powerful than just propositional truth statements. And the reason why is because of this. My wife Elizabeth, whom a lot of y'all met, um, I could describe her to y'all a lot of different ways. Elizabeth is sweet. She's a wonderful mother. She's a beautiful wife. And you have a vague idea of what I'm saying when I tell you that, right? But then when I tell you a story, when I talk to you about how leading up to Valentine's Day, she patiently sat around the table with two four-year-olds and two two two-year-olds and guided their hands over homemade Valentines and made homemade Valentines for who knows how many people, friends and family and neighbors and everything. You got a tiny little story and you're beginning to see what I mean when I say she's sweet and she's a great mother. You get what I'm saying? It's through stories that we really come to a fuller understanding of things. Um, You know, I could tell you Batman is conflicted, right? That's like a cheap way of summarizing that character. You have to see the Dark Knight to understand what it really means that Batman's conflicted. You can glean some truth from truth statement from those kind of statements, but you really understand things through stories. And what's unique about Scripture is that this is the story of all creation. This is the story of which your life is a part. This is the true story. 
And so we read it to understand who God is and who we are. The other thing I'll say, and so I say that to reveal the power of stories, that narrative really kind of is our identity. Um, and we come to understand God and ourselves through His story of redemption. But also, in our hearts, we actually all want to be a part of a story. When we watch movies, when guys, when you watch Braveheart or Gladiator or Band of Brothers or, heaven forbid, even like a zombie movie, um, the reason you watch those movies is because you identify with something in those characters that appeals to you. And a little tiny part of your heart is like, I want to live a story like that. Right? Girls, maybe it's Braveheart. I kind of doubt it. Um, Unfortunately, it might be like Kate Hudson movies. Um, Pride and Prejudice, right? Is that one? Yes? What would be the example for girls? Okay, Braveheart. All right. But when we hear those stories, there's a tiny part of us that's actually saying, like, I wish I was in a story like that. And again, what Scripture is, is is your story. And it's God's story. And so the goal for tonight is to see that there's a real story behind all of creation. And it is a story between the battle of good and evil. And we are in the midst of it. And it very much has bearing on your day-to-day life as a student at USC today. So as we consider that story, I'm going to read a sermon that Peter preached to a bunch of, to a bunch of Jewish guys in the first century who were trying to figure out what had just happened. This guy Jesus had come, walked around, healed some people, fed some people, made these claims that he was like the Son of God. And um, the Jewish people, his people, got upset, had him killed. He rose again. And then he ascended into heaven. And people have no idea what to make of it. Peter's beginning to explain it to him. Acts 3, chapter 11. Peter and uh, John have just healed a lame man in the market. And people are trying to figure out what's going on here. Here's another person coming along healing. So while the man who was healed clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though our own power or piety have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. They actually asked for another man to be released so that they could kill Jesus. You raised, uh, you asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we, we are witnesses. And by his, in his name, by faith in his name, has made... This man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoration, uh, all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. 
You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your story. I pray now that we would begin to see our place in your story, dear God, that we would see our lives as a part of something much larger that's happening in this world and even in our classrooms and in our day-to-day life with our roommates and with our friends and with our family, dear Lord, that there's a great story taking place even in those small moments. And here we get a glimpse of that story and of the wonderful conclusion. Teach us, dear God, Holy Spirit, be with us now. In your name we pray. Amen. This weekend, um, Elizabeth and I went to Nashville for the weekend to visit some family. And on the way there, we were listening, incidentally, to a radio program about country music. And on this radio program, um, they had this story about this kind of interesting phenomenon that occurs in country music. And it's this. This guy, um, his name is Aaron Fox. He's a professor of musicology at Columbia University in New York. And he studied this phenomenon. In Aboriginal Australia, like in the backwoods, whatever it is, in Australia, Hank Williams is huge. (laughs) In South Africa, Dolly Parton is huge. Everybody knows all the Dolly Parton songs. A country artist I've never even heard of, Don Williams, do you know who Don Williams is? Packs out 40,000 at a stadium in Zimbabwe on multiple nights. And he goes on and he lists all these country music artists that are huge in all these foreign nations, and not just Westernized foreign nations, like all over the place. And his question was, why does this happen? Why does country music resonate with people all throughout the world? And so he asked the question over and over again, why, to all these different people went traveling around the world, and this is the answer that he got. It's because of the stories. And it's not just because they actually have stories. There were two things in particular that overwhelmingly people said, I listen to country music because I identify with that. And it was this. In country music, there are themes, there are stories that always involve regret. And in country music, there are always stories um, that involve a longing for a better place. A longing usually for home. And so Aborigines in Australia listen to Hank Williams Because they identify with those two themes. Stories about regret and stories about a longing for a home. And you see what the reason country music apparently makes sense all over the world is because that's in all of our hearts. We all long for things not to be like they are. And we're never going to feel at home in this world. And we wish we could. And we're trying to convince ourselves that we feel at home and that peace can be had. But country music resonates with all kinds of people because it captures that sentiment, that ache in our soul for things to be not for things not to be like this. For us to have a home and to have rest and to have to not live in regret. That ache to be a part of a story that really has a satisfying ending and a satisfying conclusion. And if we're honest with ourselves, our experience in our religious life really fails to provide a compelling conclusion. You know, for the most part, what we expect and what we ask of God is actually for so much less than that. Because 
functionally, this is how we really operate as Christians. We kind of want two things from God. We first have a therapeutic purpose, which is we want emotional and psychological ease for our guilt, right? We all feel guilty about who we are at different times, and when we come to God is we just want to be feel better about who we are. And so we come to Him for that. That's important, and that's good, and it's part of the gospel. And then the functionally, besides that, the other thing we ask for Him is from then on out, we kind of just want Him to be our vending machine, right? When the things come up that we want in life and things aren't going our way, what God functionally is for us is a way to kind of get those things. And so we put in our quarters, we put in our change, do a couple of religious rites, say our prayers, and just kind of hope, all right, that God's going to you know, give me a husband, give me the right job, make my roommate situation work out, fix this problem in my life. And functionally, those, that's what we want from God. We want, some, we want to feel better about who we are, get rid of our guilt, and then let Him give us our perceived needs. And if that's all we ever experience in religion, if that's all we ever actually even ask from God... It, one thing it does, it makes religion only relevant in part of our lives. Because when life's going well, you don't, there's obviously no need for Jesus, right? If you don't need him to forgive you, and if you don't need him to give you something you want, you have no need of him. So when life's going well, you have no need of him. So Christianity is only relevant for part of your life. And then the rest of the day, you just do your daily business. Um, the other effect is our worship becomes empty. If that's all we want from God then worship becomes empty. We have no compelling reason to really worship Him. We just kind of got a little bit of counseling, and then He's our vending machine. And so what that means is, because we feel guilty about our empty worship, our worship tends to be more guided by the musical style and less by the object of worship, right? And so we feel moved when the music's the right way, but we don't feel moved because of who God is. Because all we ask Him for is a little bit of therapy and then to be give us what we want. The other thing it does is it makes the Old Testament a mystery. How do you read the Old Testament if that's what God is, right? That's why we end up reading David and Goliath and asking the question, who are your Goliaths in life? We've utterly misunderstood the passage. David and Goliath is about the king of God's people destroying the enemy of God's people. We're not supposed to be David. Jesus is who David is. We don't know how to read the Old Testament. And lastly, it's only relevant in part of our lives. We don't know how to worship. We don't know how to read the Old Testament. And lastly, when hard things come into our life, it doesn't push us toward Jesus. It actually pushes us away from God. That's when we question our faith, when things get hard. Maybe even abandon the faith. See, our experience in religion fails to live up to the story that we wish was true about our life. And the problem is, is we've actually asked so little of God. And what I want to do tonight is begin to paint a picture in broad strokes of the story that God is telling through Scripture. And what I really want to begin by saying, the first point I think is like, what is the mission of God? What I want to begin by saying is, what is the conclusion of the story? And we get it here in this, uh, uh, in this, in Acts, and we've actually been getting glimpses of it all throughout the Minor Prophets. But in verse 19, he's talking to people, he says, Repent therefore and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send Christ appointed for you, Jesus. What He's saying is repent, because there's going to be a time of refreshing. He's talking about the time when all things are made new again. The time that Jesus comes back and completely restores His reign. Verses 25 and 26, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your offspring, saying to Abraham, In your offspring shall shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up His servant, sent Him to you first, to bless you by turning everyone 
of you from your wickedness. See, the conclusion of God's story is this. The conclusion of God's story is making all things new again, fixing all that stuff, giving us the home that we were always made for, meeting that ache in our heart and saying, it's in this relationship and it's in this creation and it's in this restoration that you are always supposed to be and we're scrambling around in our lives trying to fulfill that ache and trying to find wholeness and we never do. And what God is saying is, over and over again in this story is, look at my story and look what I'm doing. I'm bringing that promise to you. One of the ways he shows it in the prophets is in Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I'm creating a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things are not going to be remembered or come into mind. Be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy. Jerusalem is, is a word for God's people. And her people will be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem. Be glad amongst my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping. And the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Or an old man who doesn't fill out his days. They shall build houses and inhabit them. We read in the Minor Prophets about how people are going to build houses and not live in them. They shall not plant. Uh, they shall not build and, and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They won't labor in vain. They won't bear children in calamity. They shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. And while they're speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall, ga- shall graze together and the lion shall eat straw like the fox. Now what's going on in this passage? He's painting us a picture of that restoration. Let me introduce it this way. When you have kids, and Lord willing, I hope you all do. It's a wonderful experience. Um, the miracle of life happens in front of your eyes. And, uh, and it's different for guys and girls. Elizabeth carried those children and really knew them before they were born. But on the day that I first held my kids, it's amazing. And there's no way, I can't describe it to you. I thought about, how can I describe it? I can't do it. And it's beautiful, but at the same moment, it's terrifying. And it's not just terrifying because you know you're going to be a bad parent. It's terrifying for this reason. It's actually more terrifying for this reason. There are three things I can promise my children. There are three things I can promise you all. If you're an unbeliever or a believer tonight, it doesn't matter who you are. There are three things we know to be true. No one's denying. The first thing is this. I look at them and I know whatever they try to do in life is going to be frustrated. Whatever they direct their life towards, whatever work they pursue, whatever they pursue in any part of their life, it's never going to measure up. It's never going to be right. It's always going to be frustrating. You know this in schoolwork. You know this in all of your life. You're running in place all the time and work never really works, right? Our work in this world, our relationship to creation from Genesis 3, one of the curses of sin is that we're going to work in this world and it's just going to be frustrating. Elizabeth and I clean our house every single day. It keeps falling apart. I can promise my girls their work's going to be frustrating. The other thing is I can promise them that their body's going to fail them. I have a friend whose four-year-old child was just diagnosed with cancer. I hope our girls live to a ripe old age, but I don't know if they will. The thing that everybody knows, believer or unbeliever, is your body's going to fail. It's going to fail. You have to deal with that reality. The third thing I can promise them is this. Their relationships are going to be messy. They're going to be messy. I'm going to be a bad parent. Elizabeth is going to be a bad parent. Probably not as bad as me. They're going to not get along with their sisters at times. It's going to be messy in our house. 
They're going to they're gonna have messy relationships with their friends. And one day, I hope they marry a wonderful Christian guy. And you know what? Their marriage is going to be messy. It's going to be hard. It's going to be really hard. Those are the things I can promise my children. Those are the things I know to be true. But you see what's going on in Isaiah 65 and throughout all of Scripture, because really this, these themes are through everything, is this. God is saying... You know what? I'm restoring your relationship with creation. Work's not going to be frustrated anymore. People are going to build houses and inhabit them. They're going to build, plant vineyards, and they're going to eat their fruit. They're not going to build stuff and then another person inhabit them. They're not going to plant things and have another person eat. What he's saying is when you work, it's not going to be frustrated anymore. That's the way I always intended it to be. The other thing he's saying is your body's not going to fail you anymore. You weren't meant for death. Death is unnatural. It was never God's intention. The separation of the body and soul at death was never God's intention. He's saying, I'm making it like it was supposed to be. The reason no one is comfortable with death, regardless of what you believe, is because it's not natural. And what he's saying here is, No more shall be heard in the new Jerusalem the sound of weeping, no more the cry of distress. No more shall there be in an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who doesn't fill out all his days. What he's saying is an old man who lives forever. In God, our bodies won't fail us. Lastly, our relationships are going to be restored. That last picture in there is, um, before they call, I will answer. While they're yet speaking, I will hear what he's saying. Is I'm going to be right there with you. That You won't ever feel distant from me ever again. And then he says, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat, like the, shall eat straw like the ox. What's he saying? He's saying there won't be enemies. There won't be opposition. There won't be frustration and brokenness in relationships. The conclusion of God's story, which is painted all throughout Scripture, we could go to a thousand different verses and we've seen glimmers of it, usually towards the end of all the minor prophets, is a place where our relationship with creation is no longer broken and frustrating. Our relationship with our bodies is no longer broken. And our relationship with God and our relationship with the people around us are no longer broken. And there won't be pain. There won't be weeping. There won't be distress. It'll all be made new again. So what does this mean to us? What I hope you're kind of getting is beginning to get a bigger picture of what this Christian faith is about. It's not just about a little bit of therapy and a vending machine. And what this calls us to do is to begin to repent of our plans, of our many plans of salvation, our many plan of how we're dealing with the darkness in our life in all sorts of ways without Jesus. One of the things we have to do is let go of all the ways we're trying to save ourselves and make this life bearable without Jesus because you can't do it. Psalm 73 is kind of amazing. We, um, we actually sang it earlier. In that psalm, the psalmist is talking about, he says this. He looks around at all the unbelievers and he says, when I look around the world and people who don't give a rip about you, this is what I see. They're happy. They're in good shape. They get what they want. They taunt people and they taunt you and they don't get, pay, they don't get payback for it. That's what Psalm 73 is. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Pride is their necklace. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflows with folly. They scoff and speak with with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, His people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? These are the wicked, always at ease, increasing in riches. It's hard to give up your mini plan of salvation because the world, because our instinct is to look at the world and be like, I think I can find happiness here. I think it can all be restored here. I think I can find peace and all this stuff 
that I'm trying to find peace in. And you can't. And the good news is that God's story does have a conclusion. And we can let go of our plans, our many conclusions, our many attempts at gathering peace and salvation in this world, and we can begin to rest in His plan. See, the next thing we do is we repent of our plan of salvation, but then we begin to trust God for more. We trust God for more, for so much more than just psychological ease for our guilt. We trust Him for new life, for resurrection life. Are you trusting God for the resurrection? We trust Him for a new heavens and a new earth. See, the reason we don't trust in God for those things is because we kind of think we know what we want better than He does. This happens all the time in our household. I can't tell you how many times we set before our kids desserts, fried foods, all these kind of wonderful things, and they're like, no, 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 I want broccoli. I don't understand. I don't understand what's going on. But I think what's going on is the same thing that goes on in our hearts. We think we understand what we want better than God does. And so we use him to ask for things like, you know, his most significant work in our life is, you know, giving us our job or telling us what major to get. He's offering the resurrection. He's offering the resurrection. He offers so much more, you're allowed to trust him for more. So we repent of our plans, our many plans of salvation. We trust him for more and thoroughly. And now we live patiently. Because what we have in this story is a story of redemption. And we have actually glimpses of the end and of the new heavens and the new earth. And we know that he's going there. And what we have is thousands of years of history of God showing us how he's faithful to bring about that new heavens and new earth. And we're not there yet. And he tells us that. And so we live patiently. And we labor and we endure trials and we endure the pain of this life, knowing that it's all part of his plan and that victory is sure. The mission of God gives us the capacity not to avoid trials and pain. There's no promise in Christianity that life's not going to be hard. If anybody tells you that, it's a lie. But it gives us the capacity to endure them for the sake of the hope that's set before us. Paul, if you read his letters, he walks around and he's like, I just don't want to be here anymore. It's hard. People don't like me. I'd rather go and die. Paul says that. I'd rather be with you, Jesus. It's going to be hard if you'll follow Jesus in this life. But what you have is you have a hope set out before you of a new heavens and a new earth with new life. Are you willing to trust God for that? So that's the conclusion of the story. We're starting at the end. The next question is, what is our role in the story? What is our role? And this is what we've been looking at in the Minor Prophets because the prophets are sent to God's people essentially to call them into their role in this story. And you see, the promise all along from the inception of God's mission organization, of His work of redemption, of that promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, was this. His plan was that He would bless His people and they would bless the world. And that promise is reiterated all over the Old Testament. Genesis 12, 18, 22, 26, 28. It keeps going and goes to Abraham's children. And keeps saying, this is my purpose for calling you, Abraham. As you're the beginning of my mission organization for bringing blessing to the world. Now, what did it look like? Well, if you've been with us throughout the semester, what the minor prophets are constantly calling Israel and Judah back to is obedience. Faith, placing our hope in God and also the practical outworking of that faith, which is obedience. That's our role in the mission of God and in our story. Now, this is how we typically view obedience. We view obedience as, you know, we get, we got the God who eases our guilt, gives us what we want, and obedience is kind of this condition on the deal of like, all right, and now I don't want you to do this stuff, 
And our agreement is like, all right, we'll try to do our best. And so our picture is kind of this narrow-minded God who's asked us to do all these things that we kind of want to do. We're going to try to do our best, and it's kind of this kind of kind of gray deal that we strike with him. And that's what obedience is. God's kind of cranky, and we're just going to try to keep him happy because we're kind of feel guilty, and also we're trying to keep a really demanding and harsh God happy because we kind of think he might get angry at us, right? And this is how we think about obedience. Just try to do good because I'm kind of scared about not doing good. That's the wrong view of obedience. It's an empty view of obedience. See, the right view of obedience is this. It's the manner in which God's blessing goes from God's people into the world. You see, when you look at the Ten Commandments and you look at them, imagine a world, a, a, a culture or a society or even a world that follows those laws perfectly. What if everyone worshipped the one true and good and holy God? What if no one worshipped any other gods? What if everybody rested? What if everybody respected the authority figures God put over his people? What if no one ever stole? What if no one ever um, committed adultery? What if no one ever murdered? What if no one ever lied? What if no one ever even coveted, looked at other people and said, I can't be happy with what, what they have? Do you know what the law describes? It describes the new heavens and the new earth, the way things were supposed to be. And our calling to obedience is not just appeasing a cranky God. Our calling to obedience is to be an advertisement of the new heavens and the new earth to the world. When God gives them the Ten Commandments in Exodus 19, He says, Exodus 19, 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He's talking about, He's given them the Ten Commandments after delivering a whole country out of slavery. He's saying, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. What he's saying, what a priest is, is someone who intercedes between the world and God. What he's saying is the purpose of obedience. I'm giving you these Ten Commandments to be my priest to the world. Y'all, we're called to obedience to advertise God's goodness, to advertise the new creation in the new heavens and new earth, to advertise the way it was supposed to be. That's not how we think about it. We just think about, I feel guilty and I'm going to try to do better because I'm kind of afraid of actually losing my salvation. That's basically the way we think about obedience. 1 Kings 8. Solomon is giving his uh, a talk after he's opened up the temple of God. He has built the temple the place where God dwelt among His people. And He's giving a speech, and His benediction of His speech is this. Let these words of mine, this is the dedication of the temple, let these words of mine with which I have pleaded before the Lord be near to the Lord our God day and night, and may He maintain the cause of His servant and the cause of His people Israel as each day requires, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. Let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in His statutes, keeping His commandments. Obedience is the manner in which we are blessing to the world. It's the manner in which we actually advertise God's goodness to the world. So we don't do it out of any kind of arrogance, saying like, you know, hoping people be like, hey, that's a great guy. No, what we hope is they look at us and we see, they see we serve a great God. Jesus summarizes the law this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul strength and love your neighbors yourself. See, obedience is not this bare command that doesn't have a larger purpose than just appeasing God. It's God's call for us to show honor and to love the one true God. 
and to live in peace with one another. And all of that for the purpose of being an advertisement to the world of the way it was supposed to be. The calling of God's people to be a blessing to the world is the calling to live in faith and obedience. So what does this do to us? For one thing, it makes sin a much bigger deal. For the most part, you know, we don't often grieve sin as an offense against God's holiness. Mainly, we're just kind of disappointed in ourselves, we're ashamed, and we're kind of embarrassed. Um, and because we don't really grieve the offense that sin is before God, we don't really care much more. We don't really care about the socially acceptable sins. So, in areas in which the kind of culture doesn't condemn, we're kind of comfortable in those sins, like gossip, discontentment, unforgiveness, right? But you see, sin is not just the breaking of a rule. It is withholding the blessing of God to the world. It's withholding the picture of a new creation, a peaceful society, a place where it all works. Barack Obama, this is not about Barack Obama, got elected kind of because people thought he could usher in utopia. Okay, everyone that's either taken power by military strength or been elected to office is basically running on the same platform. I can make the world right again. Nobody's done it. And the smarter we've gotten and the more technology we've gotten has actually led to a more violent world. 20th century is the bloodiest century in the history of humanity. We're not getting better at ushering in utopia. But obedience, a changed heart, see, the problem is actually us. Can't use us to usher in a utopia unless our hearts are changed from the inside out. No policy, no fiscal policy, social policy, whatever, can fix this. But obedience is a new heart being changed and living like the new heavens and the new earth were intended to be. Sin, especially in the life of the believer, is not just individual moral failure. It's so much more because it's actually us withholding the blessing of God to the world. We could be showing the world who the true God is. We could be showing the world what true rest is. We could show the world what true contentment is, what true love is. See, the idea of participation in God's mission actually makes sin a much bigger deal. My hope and my prayer for the Christians on campus at USC is this, that we live in such a way that people say, that's the kind of, that kind of character I don't even understand. See, what we're trying to be is we're trying to be socially acceptable morally for the most part. But what we should long for, because we long for people to know Jesus and to know God, is people to look at us and see they are a blessing to this campus. I've never seen character and integrity like that. What this also does is this makes all of life have intensely spiritual meaning. See, we think our spiritual life is something we live in private mostly, and we kind of think, you know, and then there's a couple of spiritual occupations. You know, you could be a pastor, you could be an intern, you could be a missionary, whatever it is. But you see, God's calling in all of our lives is to wherever you go, if you're a lawyer, if you're a businessman, if you fill up cars at the gas station, do it with godly integrity, and you will be a blessing Everywhere you go. This makes all of life important. This makes day-to-day life, the way you carry your way yourself in class, the way you interact in conversations with your friends, whatever it is, it's all important because in every single instance, you're called to live with perfect godly character. And you can be a blessing in the world when you do. But see, here's the problem. We don't. Right? And we read the Minor Prophets over and over again, and they haven't either. We failed in being God's people of the world and bringing that blessing. In a lot of ways, we really just look like the world or we look like good people in the world according to the world's standards. Because for the most part, our goal in our lives is really like 
how can I get what I want? Sometimes what we want is something really bad. Sometimes what we want is just like to look good, to look like a nice person, to be comfortable. So the last question then is, so what now? We know the conclusion. We know our role in the story, but we haven't fulfilled it, so what now? And this is the good news, and we've read it all throughout the Minor Prophets. The good news is not just that God would bless His people so they'd be a blessing in the world. The good news is that God is going to not, His mission will not be thwarted by our sin, by our lack of obedience, by our refusal to share His blessing to the world. See, even in the Old Testament, even in light of all of Israel's disobedience and idolatry, God was still working. And we see it all throughout the Old Testament. We see it especially in Isaiah 53. God was working His plan to bless the world in spite of us. Isaiah 53 is maybe one of the most incredible passages um, in Scripture. It's beginning to talk about Jesus. This, he's not identified as Jesus. He's called the servant of the Lord. For He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. You see, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With His stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. See, Peter in his sermon in Acts 2 is pointing them back to that Abrahamic promise. Right towards the end, right? And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And what he's doing in this speech is he's saying, that blessing, because it has failed to come through us, has come through Jesus. God didn't give up on his plan of redemption. And so he came and he was wounded for our transgressions. And he cleared of us of our iniquity by shedding his own blood. He came and did everything that we were supposed to do. Everything that you were supposed to do. He was flawless in his love and devotion for the Lord. He kept the law perfectly. So why did he die? This is why he died. Because all the sin and evil and darkness in the world is my fault. My girl's biggest issue in their life is their own selfishness. Their second biggest issue in their life is me. I've brought pain in their life already. I haven't done it well. Everything that is wrong in the world is wrong because I brought it here. And you brought it here. And it's your fault. And it's my fault. We love ourselves. And if we sit here in our ivory tower as semi-put-together USC students, we got a college education, the things that go on out there in the world aren't really like us. We wouldn't do the kind of things that go on in the really, really bad places. If we stand here and think we're not like those people, then we're misguided. And Jesus has strong words. He says, you look clean on the outside, but you're full of death on the inside. One of my favorite musicians is a guy named Sufjan Stevens. If you haven't heard him, he's a phenomenal musician. He has a song called John Wayne Gacy Jr., It's the name of a serial killer in Chicago. And throughout the song, he kind of recounts this guy's kind of ethos in his story. And this is the last line of the song. 
This is Sufyan speaking for himself. In my best behavior, I'm really just like him. Look beneath my floorboards for the secrets that I have hid. In my best behavior, I'm really just like him. You see, the reason Jesus died is because someone had to pay for the way we messed up this world. Jesus at the cross was punished for being a porn addict. Jesus at the cross was punished for being an abuser. Jesus at the cross was punished for being a racist. Jesus at the cross was punished for Jesus at the cross was punished for rape. Jesus at the cross was punished for horrendous atrocities. He was punished for being a liar. He was punished for being a gossip. Jesus was punished at the cross because it was either me or him. And all I have before the throne of God is that he was willing to shed his blood for my sins. That God would look at him and say, everything that's wrecking your little children's life, Mary Walton and Shelby and Catherine and Britton, I'm going to punish Jesus for the way you've parented so poorly. I'm going to punish Jesus for the things you've looked at on the internet. I'm going to punish Jesus for the way you've been selfish in your marriage. I'm going to punish Jesus for the way you think about people. I can't believe you think those things about people. He looked at Jesus and said, I'm punishing you for that. At the cross, God looked at Jesus and saw in Jesus all of that stuff. He had to die because I wrecked everything. And my only hope is that he can save somebody like me. And you see, this is the climax of the story. The moment of the cross is where all of my inability to be a blessing in the world, all of my inability to be everything God intended to be, which is good stuff, all gets dealt with. Because the, he rose again from the dead. And you see, it just doesn't end. Jesus doesn't finish his story in the ground. He rose again from the dead. And that new creation and that new heavens and the new earth starts with a new king reigning with a new body that will also be for us. The way one writer said it, it says this, all that there will be in the new redeemed creation will be there because of the cross. All of it will be there because of the cross. And conversely, all the things that won't be there, the suffering, the tears, the sin, Satan, sickness, oppression, corruption, decay, death, they won't be there because of the cross. Jesus became our sins so that we could become the righteousness of God. God looks on those who are in Jesus, and he sees somebody who's never disobeyed, whose heart has always been pure, perfectly. And he doesn't see anything else. He sees someone who has always been a blessing to everyone around them. And it's not because of the things I've done. It's because of what Jesus did. It's because he looks at me and he sees Jesus. So what now? What does that mean for life now? It means that we live a life of beautiful anticipation and hope. It means we have so much more than some psychological ease about our guilt and maybe some direction in life. We have the resurrection. Knowing that in Christ we have this new heavens and the new earth. In the meantime, you know what we do? We labor, we labor to tell the world about this story. Of the story of a God who wouldn't be thwarted in blessing the world. This is the question. What is your story? What is your story? Where is it heading? Is death the end? You're living a story. Is it one in which you're working and trying to prove yourself and get you some peace? Maybe some recognition? Maybe you're using a little bit of religion here, a little workaholism there, a little laziness there, a little, you know, 
try to get some love and acceptance from some people around you so that you can quiet the ache in your heart, the ache that says you're made for a grander story. What's your story? Let's pray.